We come to you, our Father, this morning acknowledge, acknowledging what we have just sung. That you are God and that you are enthroned. That there is nothing beyond your capacity, but you are sovereign over all. Not only are you sovereign over all, but you are graciously and wisely sovereign over all. Nothing has come to you in surprise, but you are designing and purposing and using all things to accomplish your exact will. That being said, our Father, we know we should trust you but sometimes our hearts waver. And so would you use this morning the scriptures we have already read, the prayers we have already prayed, the songs we have already sung, the word we are about to hear to compel us to rest in you and trust you. Father, would you solidify our hearts this morning? Would you give us confidence in you even as Christ our Savior has, has revealed to us in this word what you are like. And even as he has given us commands as to what we are to do. Might these revelations and might these commands be a balm to our hearts. And might they provoke, stimulate, encourage and produce much rest in you and contentment with you. Father, would you, would you change us in our worship this morning? And then would you also give us the ministry of the word that we might take this message of hope to so many around us who are despairing and even panicked over what might happen. Might this be an opportunity for us to reveal the truth of the hope that is within us, the hope of Jesus Christ, the King of glory and the Lord of glory. In his name we pray. Amen. We know we should not worry. But when the, the World Health Organization classifies the coronavirus as a pandemic and virtually every sports league suspends its operations, some shutting down all activity for the remainder of their year, universities move to online classes, school districts expend, extend spring breaks, much to the chagrin of the children, of course, and at least two states and many cities, including the city of Fort Worth, banning all, all community gatherings larger than 250 people. The stock market falling so precipitously that multiple times in the past week, mandatory stoppages in, tra in trading have taken place in order to try and put a halt to panicked trading. Maybe then you think, I know I shouldn't worry, but... But maybe this is like the truck that is bearing down on me in the street and I need to worry and I need to do something. If you worry, and maybe you aren't worried about coronavirus, 
but maybe you're worried about your next paycheck or your children or an economic crisis or the election in the fall or your upcoming visit to a medical specialist to speak about a mysterious problem, Jesus has a word for you in Matthew chapter 6, verse 25 to 34. And his word is very simply, do not worry. Do not worry. But he doesn't just tell us do not worry. He also tells us that which we must replace our worry with. And it is pursue Christ and Christ-likeness. Instead of worry, pursue Christ. Instead of pursuing anxiety, pursue Christ. Instead of embracing worry, embrace Christ and Christ-likeness. Why is that statement true? Why should we not be anxious? Jesus in this passage, with which I know you are familiar, gives us eight reasons why we should not engage in worried thinking. And those eight reasons not only compel us not to worry, but they also reframe, reframe our minds and tell us how we are able not to worry. Do not worry, but pursue Christ and Christ-likeness. As we come to this passage, I want you to see the basic premise. And the basic premise is what I've already said, and it is this. Do not worry. Three times in this passage, Jesus uses those words or very similar words. Verse 25, for this reason I say to you, do not be worried. Verse 31 do not worry then. Verse 34, so do not worry about tomorrow. From the beginning of the passage, verse 25, to the end of the passage, verse 34, and with a reinforcement in the middle of the passage, the message of Jesus very simply is do not worry. Do not think about something to the point that it distracts one from other things. Jesus is not saying we should not think about the realities and the circumstances of life around us. He tells a, a parable in Luke chapter 16 about the unrighteous steward who is told that he is going to lose his position and he makes plans to position himself for job opportunities after he loses his job. So Jesus, in fact, in that parable, commends the man for his prudent thinking, his careful thinking, his wise planning. So Jesus is not telling us, don't think about the circumstances around us. But he is telling us, don't sin as you think about the circumstances around you. And the sin is in being consumed with the circumstance to the point that we are distracted from God-given purposes. Let me give you what I've found to be a helpful definition of worry that John MacArthur has provided for us. Worry is the sin of distrusting the promise and providence of God. Worry is the opposite of contentment, which should be the believer's normal and consistent state of mind. A Christian's contentment is found in God and only in God, in his ownership, control, and provision of everything we possess and everything we will ever need. 
Here's the problem with worry. Worry is a sin because it demonstrates, and we'll see this again as Jesus speaks, it demonstrates a distrust in God and it demonstrates an over-dependence on myself. I say, I cannot trust God. Only I am trustworthy in this circumstance. I must resolve it. I must be sovereign. I am wiser than all, including wiser than the Lord in heaven. One writer has said, of course, many people like to worry. Like the guy who has the plaque in his office. If you can keep your head when all others around are losing theirs, it is obvious that you do not understand the situation. We like to worry because we like to exalt ourselves to to create the image that we are sovereign and we are sufficient. And God will design circumstances to continually remind us on a daily basis You are not sovereign. You are not independent. You are fully dependent. Notice as well that Jesus gives this very simple premise. Do not worry. Do not be anxious three times. That tells us that this is a very real temptation. In in this short number of verses, three times he tells us don't do it. In fact, he doesn't just say don't do it the The force of the construction is not just don't do it. The force is stop doing it. So Jesus is anticipating that those who were hearing him were already engaged in worry. It's a real temptation. And there is is a fine line, isn't there, between careful planning, prudent and wise discernment, and panicked worry. And it seems... As we look at the culture around us, and if you are brave enough to venture into a grocery store these days, it seems that many have crossed the line into panic, haven't they? In fact, Regine came home from the grocery store yesterday. I wasn't brave enough to go with her. And she said, "Uh, we need to keep our garage door closed. I don't want anybody seeing we have a refrigerator in our garage. And it's silly to say that. But that's where the panic seems to be taking people. Jesus tells us three times, don't don't worry. Because it's a very real temptation. It's a reality that we can easily fall into. But Jesus also gives us, not just as a suggestion, he gives it as a command. This is something that he impels us, compels us to do. It is our responsibility to obey And that Jesus says this three times means that it is a very real command. And it is a reminder that God has given to us the resources that we need to obey this command. Jesus does not command us to do something which he does not also equip us to do. And we need to hear that this morning. I want you also to think about this passage in a very particular way. As as we come to this passage, I want you to think about this passage in three ways. First, I want you to examine yourself. It is striking, and I I don't know if you captured it or, or caught it as I was reading, but in this passage, Jesus teaches in such a way that he is compelling self examination, and he does that by asking questions. 
Now, Jesus asked questions a lot. But in these few verses, he asks eight questions. Eight times he questions his hearers. And it is his way of trying to drive these truths into their lives so that they will examine their own hearts. And so as we make our way through this passage, let's just ask the question of ourselves. Is this the condition of my heart? Is this where I am living? I, I, know, I know the answer I'm supposed to give. This is Grace Bible Church. This is Sunday morning. This is worship. I've just come out of Sunday school. I know the answer I'm supposed to give. But, but is this the condition of what my heart really is? Secondly, renew your mind. The reason we worry is that our minds are not conformed to Christ. And what... What Jesus gives us in this passage is a new way of thinking. He would, he would have our minds to change the way we think about our circumstances, about life, about Him. And so as, as we're making our way through this passage, you might just even make notes and put a little R with a circle around it or something just as a, a place. This is, what, this is what needs to be renewed in my mind. This is a new way for me to think. I must focus on that. And then particularly as you renew your mind, meditate on God. As we make our way through this passage, we will find numerous references to our Lord and to God. Numerous references that reveal His character, His person, His nature. And friends, to combat worry, we have to have a true and great view of God and His person. I think I think we need to look at social media very carefully these days. But but earlier this week, I found something on Twitter that actually was tremendously helpful and such a good reminder. The writer said this, our panic around this virus and other matters is a a, a real alarm stems from the fact that we have no control, no known measure to fully protect ourselves. I want to remind you that it's okay to feel not in control when the one who loves you most is in total control. And friends, we need that reminder, and that is the reminder that we will find in this passage. So Jesus gives us eight reasons not to worry. Eight reasons that that we shouldn't engage in worry. Eight reasons that we should stop worrying if we have begun. And eight principles for renewing our minds. The first is given to us in verse 25. Do not be anxious because life is more than bodily needs. Do not be anxious because life is more than bodily needs. Notice what he says in verse 25. For this reason I say to you, do not be worried about your life. As to what you will eat or what you will drink. And when Jesus says, for your life, he follows it with that clause, what you're going to eat or what you will drink. And there he is defining for us what his hearers think life is about. They think that the sum total of life, that that the essence of life, the, the purpose of life, the The manifestation, the end of life is about food and clothing. 
And what's interesting is that Jesus in, in, in this sermon has already addressed this issue. In fact, in verses 19 to 24, he addresses this very same thing except from a different perspective. He addresses those who want more of what they already have. They have enough, but they just want more because they they think they they need more to be satisfied. And, And here in verses 25 to 34, he comes from the other perspective and he addresses those who want more because they they don't have enough or they believe they don't have enough or they believe they, they will not have enough tomorrow. And he addresses them and their thinking. And both of these opposite ends of the same spectrum are dealing with the same sin and it is the sin of worry. It is a sin of worry from affluence and it is a sin of worry from deprivation. But both of them betray a false priority that say food and clothing are the essence of my life. They are the end of life. They are the purpose of my life. And Jesus says, wherever you are on that spectrum, do not worry. And this is a very real issue for those who are alive in that times. A a writer reminds us about the physical condition of those who are hearing these words. He writes this, most people in the ancient world lived like members of the third world today. Laborers were paid every day because they needed the money to live the next day. The government gave them no security. They had no safety net. Some estimate that the average citizen in Palestine paid at least 40% of his wages in taxes. Times may be hard today, but they were concrete tough then. Yet to people then and now, Jesus said, don't worry. When Jesus says, do not be worried about your life, He is helping us to understand that we must think about life rightly. We must discern what life is about rightly. And we must think about the end of life rightly. And we must not be anxious even as we think about the end of life. The people who are fretting or prone to fretting in this circumstance or thinking in this way, if I don't get this food or this clothing, I'll die. And Jesus is reminding them that, that life is more than food and life is more than clothing. There is a greater worry in life. In fact, he will tell us in Luke chapter 12 what that worry is. I say to you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body and after that have no more that they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear the one who after he has killed has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. There is a right kind of fear. But the right kind of fear is focused on God with whom all men have to do. The right kind of fear is not, do I have enough disinfectant wipes and do I have enough toilet paper stocked up for the next 12 years? And yet that's where people are going. Their fears are irrational. They have, they have not contemplated the reality and the significance of what the end of their life will be 
They have chosen the wrong fear. And so look at what Jesus says at the end of verse 25. He asks the question, Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? With that question, he reminds us, life is not about food. Life is not about avoiding starvation. Life is not about clothing. Life is not about making sure that you're protected in the elements. Life is far beyond that. Those who are fretting, particularly panicked today over the pandemic of the coronavirus are exposing the folly of a belief system that says food and clothing are ultimate and death can be ignored. This fear about life and death is just being exposed in these days. People are having their belief systems stripped away from all the things that are covering what they say they believe. And we are seeing hearts being exposed. People who reject God are having their fear of death exposed. Years ago, I wasn't even married, so it was almost back to the dark ages. I was on a flight headed back to my parental home for Christmas and um, got to talking to the guy in the seat next to me and he was a Jewish atheist and we had an interesting conversation. And um, as we were nearing, we had to make a connecting flight or I had to make a connecting flight and we were nearing landing for making that connecting flight and, um, and we were going through clouds and I remember thinking, wow, there's, there's a lot of clouds. He it's, it's really deep, and I'm thinking, it's, it's really, there's a lot of clouds. And boy, the clouds are really thick today. And, and we finally broke through, and it was like, wow, there's the ground. It's right there. That's weird. And about the time I had that thought, the pilot put the nose, felt like straight up, and gunned it. And I thought, I've never had that happen before. That's kind of fun. My Jewish atheist friend didn't think it was fun. And he got really quiet. And a couple of minutes later, the pilot came on and said, uh, we were not clear to land. There wasn't enough visibility. So they, they're diverting us and sending us to another airport, which actually worked out great for me because it was the airport I needed to go to eventually anyway. So, so I was happy. And about that time, after he finished and you know everybody's kind of calmed back down, I looked at the guy next to me and I said, uh, my Jewish atheist friend, I said, you got really quiet. Yeah. Are you okay? Man, I'm scared. Really? I said, well, what were you doing when you were quiet? I was praying. (laughs) Exactly. So I asked the question, to whom were you praying if you're a Jew that doesn't believe in the Messiah and you're an atheist that doesn't believe God exists? Who can hear you? I'm praying to anybody who could listen. It's folly. And he's terrified of death. It's being exposed. And Jesus is reminding us that when we are in him, we don't need to worry. We have life. I may not have clothes. I may not have food. 
I have what I need. And friends, when, when the fear is being exposed, it's a grace gift to us because it gives us the opportunity to turn these folks to the gospel. Do not be anxious because life is more than bodily needs. Do not be anxious because you are more valuable than God-fed birds. Look at verse 26. Look, look at the birds of the air. Now, Regine, in fact, yesterday she came in and she made a comment about some of the birds. And I'm just thinking, how do you notice that stuff? I just don't pay any attention to it. But she's She's fixated on that. I don't mean that in a bad way. I mean, she just delights in that. And she sees the flowers and the colors. And I'm just, I'm just oblivious. I'm going to where I'm going. She calls that my search and destroy mode when we're traveling. I don't notice. But she's looking at creation. And that's what Jesus wants us to do here. Look. Have you looked at the birds? Have you thought about their life circumstance? Have you thought about the world in which they live? And and he reminds us about what we should observe about them. They don't sow. When's the last time you've seen a bird out dropping seeds into the ground and covering it up? Uh, Regine does that a lot, but birds don't. Birds come and dig up what she puts down, but that's another story. They don't sow. They don't reap. I've never seen a a, a bird driving a combine in the field. And they don't gather in the barns. I don't see them pulling the combine up to the um, building. Where's Kevin? The, the, The silo. Thank you. And filling up the silo. You can tell I'm not a farmer, right? They don't do that. I also don't see any birds wringing their wings. Where am I going to get a meal? They don't sow. They don't reap. They don't store up. They're not involved in the farming process. And they're cared for. How are they cared for? Your heavenly Father feeds them. Now, isn't that an interesting way to say it? He doesn't say their heavenly Father. Why doesn't he say that? He's not their heavenly father. He is their heavenly creator. He is their heavenly sustainer. He is their heavenly provider. But he is not their father. He does not have a father-son relationship with them. He has not adopted them into their family. And yet... He has cared magnificently for them. And then Jesus also reminds us that the one who is the Father in heaven is our heavenly Father. And by an argument that goes from the lesser to the greater, he reminds us that if, he, if, the, if the Father who is our Father will care for the ones for whom He is not the Father, will He not be much more gracious and lavish in His care of us? Yes. In fact, 
Jesus asked the question, Are you not worth much more than they? And the question the question begs and anticipates a yes answer. Yes. Yes, you are worth more. And, and we hear a whole lot culturally about, oh, we need to build up self-esteem and we need, to, we need to encourage people about their worthiness. We don't need to encourage people about their worthiness, but we do need to remind ourselves of our worthiness to the Lord in Christ. When we are in Him, He is he is our Father. I want you to think about this. Remember, remember, I guess a few months ago, we were in Romans chapter 8, verse 15. You have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons, by which we cry out, Habba, Father. And we think about that verse... I can go into the throne room of God and I call him my daddy. I have access to him and intimacy and fellowship with him. But friends, what I want you to see is that what Jesus is teaching is not just that we can go to him as daddy, but he loves to be our daddy. He is not begrudging and miserly in his care of us as, his, as our father. He is lavish and delights in that fatherly role. So Paul will say near the end of Romans 8, What is this one who is our father like? What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? Who did not spare his own son? but delivered him over for us all. How will he not also with him freely give us all things? Friends, he's given us his son at a cost we cannot begin to imagine. Do you think he's going to be miserly? And hold back a little food and a little clothing. He'll care for you. We don't need to be anxious. You are of immeasurable value to him. And he will keep you. Don't be anxious. Third, do not be anxious. Because anxiety accomplishes nothing Jesus asks this question in verse 27. Who of you, by being worried, can add a single hour to his life? That word hour is actually the word cubit. Uh, it's a measurement, about 18 inches. Who can extend his life by 18 inches? Or thinking about some of our littler members who are running around here, who can add 18 inches to their height. Now, some of them would like to instantaneously. Can't do it. You cannot extend the length of your life 18 inches, five years, five minutes, five nanoseconds. Worry will never extend length or substance to your life. God holds 
the exact moment of our birth and the exact moment of our death in his hands and nothing subverts that. Now we need to be wise. That's Psalm 90 verse 12. We need to be wise about that. But we need to understand that the exact timeline of our lives is controlled by the Lord. That doesn't mean we won't get sick and we won't die. Frankly, unless we are raptured, all of us will die. And as my grandmother wisely used to say, I need to die of something. So we will get sick in some way or have some accident to hasten our transference from this life to the next life. But in all of that, we can rest. That that timeline is controlled by the Lord. We don't need to be anxious about our death. We do not need to be anxious as if we are sovereign over the length of our life. Psalm 31, verse 15. My times are in your hand. The time of my life, the length of my days, your hand. Psalm 139, verse 16. Your eyes have seen my unformed substance and in your book were written the days that were ordained for me when as yet there was not one of them. Before the foundation of the earth, the Lord had decreed and planned every single day that I have. How many do I get? I don't know. 57 and a half years so far. I'm not guaranteed one more. But I'm also, I'm also guaranteed every single one that God has planned for me. I will not be shortchanged. I will get what he, gives, what he uh, has planned for me. Says one writer, most of us worry because of our pride. We think we ought to be big enough to handle any situation that comes. And we are too proud to ask for God's help. We think we ought to be able to accept and bear everything by ourselves. And that is not what the Word of God demands. The Word of God asks us to recognize our inability and to transfer any burdens to the one who is able so Jesus' question in this verse is addressing our desire for control. Am I supposing that I am sovereign or am I willing to trust the only one who is sovereign? And the anxiousness we see around us is people coming to an awareness that they're out of control or they're not in control and they are desperately trying to cling to it in some way. Do not be anxious because anxiety accomplishes nothing. Fourth reason not to be anxious, do not be anxious because anxiety is unbelief. This is verses 28 to 30. This is, this is the center section in the paragraph and it is the key to understanding this passage. So notice what Jesus asks in verse 28. Why are you worried about clothing? It not only asks if we're worried, 
but address, it addresses also the motive for our fears. Notice what he says. Why are you worried? What is compelling your anxiety about your, your covering and your protection and your safety? When you're yearning for clothing and when you're pursuing covering and when you're pursuing protection, when you're pursuing safety, what is it that you really want? What's compelling that? Notice how Jesus directs them. Observe. Again, it's the same idea as in verse 26, except now instead of looking at the birds, he says, look at the lilies of the field, how they grow. In fact, this morning, Regine said, did you see the lilies? I said, the ones out front? No, the ones on the side of the house. No, I didn't see them. Look at them. Observe them. Do you see them? Are you contemplating them? Are you changing the way you think about life and the way you think about God as you observe the creation around you? And just as he said about the birds, he says of the lilies, they don't toil. They're not growing cotton. They're not spinning. They're not pulling the cotton in. And I've yet to go out to my garden and see flowers with a little spinning wheel making cotton to put on clothing. And yet, even Solomon, not even Solomon, in all his glory, was able to clothe himself like one of these. The magnificence of, of creation and the flowers around us. That's God's handiwork. And we need to look at that and recognize how God has cared for them and provided for them. Where does... Where does the anxiety come from? Jesus identifies it. What's driving this? Look at verse 30. If God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today and today and tomorrow is thrown into the furnace, will he not much more clothe you? You of little faith. Why do anxiety and worry exist? Because we don't believe. Now that's not that's not what we would say. We would not we we we, we know enough to say I, I need to believe, I need to trust, I need to be confident in God. But Jesus says when we worry, we are betraying a heart that does not trust the Lord. It's unbelief in a sovereign sovereign God. It is a failing faith. It is, as one commentator put it, infidelity. It is unfaithfulness to God. Anxiety exists because faith is weak. And the antidote to fear is not to give people the object of their fears. The antidote to fear is not to give everybody 10 cases of toilet paper and 10 cases of of disinfectant wipes. That's, That's not the antidote to fear. Because worry is unbelief, and because unbelief is sin, the antidote to worry is confession and trust. Specifically, we need to confess our unbelief, and we need to confess our lack of trust in God who is good. We have believed 
that God isn't good and God doesn't care when we worry. And we need to confess that. And so Jesus asked the question, will not God clothe you? If he cares for flowers and he decorates them and clothes them with such sparkling array, won't he care for you as the Father? You know, here's the irony. These people are worried about, about things that they don't have and they're worried that they won't have what they need. And the irony is they don't have something that they need and they're not the least bit worried about it. What they, what they don't have is they don't have trust in Christ. They don't have confidence in Christ. And that's what they need. They don't need something from the grocery store. They don't need the CDC to say, it's okay, don't worry. It's all taken care of. Here's a, here's a vaccine. Nobody will ever get sick again. They don't need that. They need confidence in Christ. And they don't, they don't want that. They're not really interested in that. You know, this is not, this is not the first pandemic. 1980s, we had HIV and AIDS. 36 million people have died of HIV and AIDS since the 1980s. 1968, a flu pandemic took a million lives. The Spanish flu pandemic of 1918, 50 million lives. Black death, bubonic plague in the 14th century, somewhere between 75 and 200 million people died. And we haven't even talked about the little pandemics where only thousands or tens of thousands of people have died. And we haven't talked about hurricanes and tornadoes and floods and tsunamis and financial crisis and falling stock markets and divorces and all manners of abuse and cancer and Y2K and car accidents. This is norm in life. This is not unusual that, that hard things come. This is the norm of living in a fallen world. And what we need is not to have a safety net that says, we'll not have any problems, so don't worry. What we need is the safety net of Christ that says, when I'm in Him, I'm safe no matter what happens, and something will happen. I can be content in Him. Listen to what Thomas Watson said about believing God in trials. In case of the loss of dear friends, a wife or child or husband, let us rest satisfied in God's wisdom. God takes away these. He means death. God takes away these because he would have more of our love. He breaks these crutches that we may live more upon him by faith. God would have us learn to go without crutches. So the question is, is the pandemic revealing our crutches and that we are destitute in our fellowship with Christ?
Do not be anxious because anxiety is unbelief. Verse 31, do not be anxious because anxiety is unbecoming. Do not worry then. And Jesus gives us three questions saying, what will we eat? What will we drink? What will we wear for clothing? For the Gentiles eagerly seek all these things. The questions that Jesus asks are getting to the heart of our hearts. Am I willing to obey by not being anxious about these things? Remember again, he says, do not be anxious. That's not a command. It's not a suggestion. It's not a, this is, this is a better way to live. This is a command. This is an imperative. This is a requirement. This is a duty, a duty that he enables us to do, by the way. And the question is, am I willing to do these things? Am I, willing, am I willing to meditate on Him in such a way that my emotions are controlled? Am I willing to meditate on Him so that I, when I awaken at 2 in the morning and my mind gravitates to, I need these things, I want these things, I'm anxious about these things, that I control my thoughts And I refuse to engage in anxiety. And the reason he says we are not to engage in anxiety is because this is the this is what the Gentiles do. This is what this is what the Gentiles seek, this is what unbelievers seek, and this is what unbelievers live for. My friends, every time we worry, we are living like the unregenerate. We underestimate what worry is. Worry is godless, anti-God living. We, we, we call it the respectable sin. Oh, yeah, well, yeah, I know you worry, and I know I shouldn't worry, but, but it's okay. No, friend, it's godless living. When we worry, we say that we are living like the unregenerate. Something is amiss in our hearts when we worry. That is not to say that we should not take action. That is not to say that we should not plan. It is not to say that we shouldn't be prudent. It is not to say that we shouldn't be wise and discerning. Remember what Jesus' uh, half-brother James said? Um, You do not know, James 4.14, what your life will be like tomorrow. You're just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and also do this or that. If the Lord wills, this is my plan. If the Lord allows, if the Lord gives me these days, this is my plan. This is my intention. And, And notice that James is saying it's not wrong to make a plan. It's acceptable to make a plan. It's wise to make a plan. But that plan needs to be made underneath the sovereignty of God, resting if the Lord wills, if the Lord decrees, if the Lord allows. And so when we say we shouldn't be anxious about coronavirus, we're not, we're not saying you shouldn't take precautions against it any more than we would say you're in a burning building, but don't take out the fire extinguisher and don't call 911 and, and please do not leave the burning building. That would indicate a lack of trust in God. Well, that would be folly. And so we're saying, take precautions, be wise, be discerning. But friend, don't be anxious while you're making your plans. Because anxiousness 
is what unbelievers do when they make their plans. Do not be anxious, sixthly, because your Father knows your need. The Gentiles seek these things, verse 32. Don't do that, because your heavenly Father knows that you need these things. Again, your heavenly Father. He is yours. He is in heaven, which means He is sovereign and in control and king, and He is your Father. There's something remarkable that happened in the Sermon on the Mount. In the Old Testament, I don't remember the exact number, but in the Old Testament, God is referred to as Father, I believe, seven times. It might, I might be off one or two. It's less than ten. Less than ten times in the Old Testament is God called by name Father. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus calls him Father 17 times. You think he wants them to understand something? Friends, he's our Father. Let's turn the page. Chapter 7. What man is there among you who when his son asks for a loaf will give him a stone? Daddy, I'm hungry. Here, son, eat a stone. (laughs) Nobody does that. Or if he asked for a fish, Dad, can we have fish tonight? He doesn't give him a snake, will he? Well, it's almost like fish. It tastes like chicken. doesn't give him a snake. If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more? I'll tell you how much more. Infinitely more. That's how much more. How much more will your Father who is in heaven give to those who ask Him? He's your Father. He'll give you what you need. He's your father. He knows your need. He's your father. He cares about your need. He's your father. He's able to meet your need. You can trust him. Don't need to be anxious. Don't need to be overrun with worry. You can trust him. Like what the writer Victor Hugo said a couple centuries ago, have courage for the great sorrows in life and patience for the small ones. And sleep when you have finished your daily task. Go to sleep in peace. God is awake. Isn't that good? Sleep in peace. God is awake. Do not be anxious. Your Father knows your need. Do not be anxious because there is one great priority in life. And and, and notice, he keeps saying over and over in this passage, don't be anxious, stop being anxious, stop being anxious. That's, That's what we would call in the process of sanctification, the put off. That's what we should stop doing. And here in verse 32, 33 rather, he gives us the put on. This is what we ought to start doing. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. Seek 
pursue with unceasing quest. Seek first as, as your primary priority above all else. Seek this. Seek, seek his kingdom. Seek the exaltation of his kingdom. Seek, seek the knowledge of his kingdom to be known in the world. Seek, seek others to, to know the kingdom. Seek others so that they will be um, informed about who Jesus Christ is. Seek to live underneath his kingdom and submission to his kingdom and submission to his will and then pursue his righteousness. Seek him first. You need something to occupy your mind at two in the morning? How about this? If you have been raised up with Christ, Keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God, and set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on the earth. Pursue Christ. That's Colossians 3. Pursue Him. Pursue His righteousness. When we worry, we're revealing that Christ really isn't at the center of our lives. Oh yeah, we've trusted, we have salvation, but we're living functionally as if he's not at the center of our lives. And when people around us are acting with panic and greed, They're revealing the same things. They don't have Christ. And friends, this is giving us a great opportunity. Um, Usually at least once or twice a week, I'll make my way um, across the street to Subway and get a sandwich and take my laptop laptop and a stack of books. And I just hold out there for three or four hours just studying. There's a new manager over there this week and Hadn't seen her before, introduced myself. And she looked at me and said, you're a pastor, aren't you? And um, I guess it was my Bible that gave me away, either that or some of the other employees were talking. I said, I am. And she said, what do you think about coronavirus? Isn't that interesting? And I said, I think people's hearts are being exposed. I said, I don't know. I'm not a medical professional. I don't know what to make about all this medically. I'm not an expert in pandemics. I can't figure that out. But I do know that people's hearts are being exposed. And I do know that people are finding themselves to be hopeless. And I do know the answer to their hopelessness is Jesus Christ who came to earth and died for our sin to redeem us and to give us an opportunity to live with him in glory and to have the greatest satisfaction in life. Is that what you believe? Isn't that a great opportunity? Without coronavirus, I'm pretty sure she would have never asked that question. But she asked, and I had an immediate entry into the gospel. That same day, Ray Jean's at Kroger, and the cashier is weeping with fear. And she's scanning and weeping and Ray Jean says, let me pray with you. And she gives an op- has an opportunity to pray the gospel 
And then Regine goes to Brahms to get some bananas and milk. And in case the world ends, we want to have a little bit of ice cream, just in case. <laughs> so I asked her last night, I said, this is, complete, this is completely off topic. I asked her last night, I said, you, did you get some ice cream at Brahms the other day? She said, yeah. I said, what did you get? She said, I got four flavors. <laughs> We're set, <laughs> and we'll share. If you come to the house and you need some, we'll share. And same thing happened at Brahms. Somebody's weeping, and it's an opportunity for the gospel. Friends, there's one priority in life, and this world is demonstrating they don't get it. But we do. We know. We've got an opportunity to tell them. Let's tell them. Can't we? Let's look for opportunities this week to tell them about Jesus Christ. Don't be anxious because there's one great priority in life. Lastly, do not be anxious because God will give you what you need today and tomorrow. I, I, I've taught this passage, I don't know how many times, either publicly or in private in my office in a counseling setting. And I get to verse 34, and, 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 and I, I honestly admit, I'm not sure that verse 34 is a tremendous comfort to me because he says, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will take care of itself. In other words, there's something coming tomorrow. Just hang on, bub. You ain't seen nothing yet. But what does he tell us? It'll take care of itself. The Lord is sufficient for you today. He'll be sufficient for you tomorrow. Just like the Israelites had to learn the sufficiency of, of God day by day by going out every day and picking manna up off the ground. No getting two days worth of manna when they were in the wilderness. He's only going to give one day. And if you keep it over, it's going to turn to worms and be nasty. Except on Friday. You get Friday, you can pick up for Saturday. It'll be good. But Sunday, you hold anything over to Sunday, it's all turning bad again. Got to go back out Sunday morning and pick it up again. He's teaching them. The Lord's sufficient. He'll provide for you what you need tomorrow. Every day, every day there will be a problem. And every day, the Lord will be sufficient for it. I love the story in C.S. Lewis' book, The Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe. One of the children in Narnia asks Mr. and Mrs. Beaver about the lion, Aslan. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. That you will, dearie, and make no mistake, said Mrs. Beaver. If there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or just plain silly. Then he isn't safe? asked Lucy. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. But he's good. He's the king, I tell you. Listen, friend, if you want safety in this life, if you want safety from coronaviruses and tornadoes and stock markets falling and a secure bank account 
and no cancer, you're not going to get it. But if you want safety, being held in the hands of the Father who loves you, you have everything you need. When we are safe in His hands and His arms, we are infinitely and eternally safe. Remember at the beginning of this message, I mentioned that Jesus is asking eight questions in this passage. They're heart-examining questions. Did you hear them? Have you been letting Him examine your heart this morning? Hear them again. Are you living for temporal pleasures and earthly priorities? Are you remembering your value to the Lord? Are you supposing sovereignty for yourself? What is your motive for your worry? Is your worry an indication of your lack of trust in the Lord? Are you willing to obey the Lord with your emotions? In God's grace, God has given us in the coronavirus an opportunity to examine our hearts. It's not just the world's hearts that are being exposed. Our hearts are being exposed. What we want, what we desire, and what we believe will satisfy us is being exposed. Don't worry. Trust God. And He will care for you even if that means taking you to your eternal home. Father, thanks for the encouragement of these words. Thank you for the thank you for the examination in these words. For we need our hearts examined, we need our hearts corrected. And thank you for the coronavirus that is exposing our hearts that is exposing the hearts of the world, that is giving us an opportunity to speak the gospel into the lives of those who do not believe. So, Father, this morning, would you give us comfort? Would you give us peace? And then would you give us boldness to point people who don't have peace to the only means of peace that they will ever have, Jesus Christ. We pray these things in His name. Amen.